Good morning. Welcome to, to Faith this morning. I've got a slight cold. I'm going to go to this water a little bit more than normal, keep my, my mouth moist. But it's been a great time of worship. I've enjoyed uh, just uh, being uh, in, the, in the service and, and, and lifting up praises to God. And we're in a worship series about praise, about worship, worshiping God, the, the roots of worship. We're looking at the book of First Chronicles at, at different insights through these passages that, that, that teach us about, about worship. The, the, the generation uh, uh, that, that the chronicle is writing to, were, they needed to know, to, to know that God was their God and they could worship God. And they had, been, they, they had been through exile because of not worshiping God right and having wrong attitudes about God. And now, so worship is being restored in, among God's people at this time. Today's uh, uh, passage is First Chronicles 17. My title is A House for God, A House for God. There are several big questions that you, you ask yourself when you're moving or you're relocating to a a certain place, a certain part, a certain part of the country or world. One is um, location. Where, where, you know, do I want to be close to work or school or church or, or what neighborhood? What lo- location is always a, a big question when you want to relocate and move somewhere. Another big question is 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 cost. How much can I afford per month uh, uh, for a down payment or a deposit if you're going to rent? Another question is, am I going to rent or buy or build? Rent, buy or build. Now, renting speaks of temporariness, and, and buying usually speaks of a little more permanency. And then, what size or what style house am I going to move into or try to move into? Lots of different types of houses. In fact, there's a show called um, uh, Tiny Houses that I've never seen, but I, I hear, I've heard about it on, on a home and garden television. And that's a house being, being pulled by a truck, by, by a pickup truck. And there's another house, a tiny house. I don't know who lives in those houses. Somebody, does, somebody wants to downsize, I guess, and live in those tiny houses. So, some houses, um, I know are mobile. Uh, some, some houses are in tents. And, and, and some, some the hardy folks, the outdoors folks, they like to, you know, that, that's, a nice, that's the nicest looking tent I've ever seen. That's a tent. <laughs> some, some people are, are rather mobile. They live in trailer homes or, or mobile homes. I've, I've been to, uh, lived in, not lived in one, but I've been to a trailer home before. And of course, in Baltimore, we have a lot of row houses. Row houses. Uh, I've lived in a row house. Maybe some of you live in a row house. Uh, some, some people like big houses, call them mansions. So you see, who lives there? How'd you like to clean that house? How'd you like to, to, to pay the heating bill and the air conditioning bill? Then there's a, the, the, the unique house that somebody, I don't know why people wouldn't live in that house right there, but there are a lot of people this week that are trying to live there, from what I understand. That's the White House, probably the most popular house in the world, the White House. Well, King David had a house. It was made of cedar, which put him in the high rent district. But one day he was pondering and thinking and that all the kings had big houses, not just for themselves, but for the, their deity, in honor of their deity, uh, dedicated to the gods. And, and why didn't his god have a nice house? house for the only true and living God. And, and so, and, and now we've talked about the Ark of the Covenant in this series, how this Ark was a, a, a representation, a manifestation of the presence of God on earth. It, it, it was in a temporary tent, a temporary tabernacle, similar to the one in the wilderness. And, and David pondered, why not build a permanent, a nice permanent, luxurious place for the Ark of the Covenant, for the presence of God? Of course, the ark was designed to be very mobile, right? And they brought it to Jerusalem. They brought it all over the place, but it landed in Jerusalem finally. And, and they had recommitted themselves to, to proper handling procedures. 
after the tragic death of Uzzah for touching the ark and not handling it properly. David is wanting to consolidate the monarchy under the banner of Yahweh, the ultimate king, his lord, his king, creating a unified empire in Israel. And it was now time for strong stability, not easy mobility. In essence, David felt that he needed to build, to build something glorious, majestic, and beautiful, worthy of one who was himself glorious, majestic, and beautiful. But, but it was still in a place that was embarrassingly weak compared to David's own nice crib that he had. So he wanted to build something for God, the ark. We, just, we see that desire in his heart in the first ch- part of this chapter, which we heard in the scripture reading, which, chapter 17, verse 1 and following. We heard that, and we're going to talk about that as we, as we begin. But because but, but, God comes to, to David with a surprise, so, something more than David could imagine, something bigger than David's biggest dreams. We, we heard the promise in the scripture text. And let's pick up the story at verse 16, the end of the, end of the past, 16 to 27. Let me read this text, First <clears throat> Chronicles 17, verse 16. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord, and what is my house that you've brought me thus far? And this was a small thing in your eyes, O God. You have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come and have shown me future generations, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you for honoring your servant? For you know your servant. For your servant's sake, O Lord, and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness in making known all these great things. There's none like you, O Lord. There's no one besides you, according to all we have heard with our ears. Who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making for yourself a name for, for great and awesome things, in driving out nations before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt? And you made your people Israel to be your people forever, and you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord, let the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house be established forever and do as you have spoken and your name will be established and magnified forever saying the Lord of hosts the God of Israel is Israel's God and the house of your servant David will be established before you for you my God have revealed to your servant that you will build a house for him therefore your servant has found courage to pray before you and now O Lord you are God you have promised this good thing to your servant now you have been pleased to bless the house of your servant that it may continue forever before you. For it is you, O Lord, who have blessed, and it is blessed forever. God's word. We, we see, here, see here something that, that God is trying to show David. And I think he's trying to show us the same thing. Our faith is not about what we do for God. What God has done for us and will do for us. That, that, it's not about what we do. It's what God is doing and will do for us. That's what our faith is about. Today we're going to look at the, the promise. We're going to review the promise in the first 15 verses. Then we're going to look at the prayer of David. We're going to focus on this prayer of David. We're going to look at his personal humility, at his, his response of corporate praise, and then his settled affirmation. And to do that, we're going to see a few things about worship. Because, you know, worship is response. Worship is responding to God. And, that's, and, and we're talking about the roots of worship. We, uh, it, it's responding to what God uh, has done, is doing, and wants to do. That's what worship's about. 
Verse, let's, let's, let's review the promise. Verses 1 to 15, the promise. And we see, again, we, we've talked about this simple wish that David had to build a house for the ark. You know, it's a, it's a not, not nice idea. It's a novel idea. In verse 1, you see it. He says, hey, I want to build a house uh, uh, for, for the ark, for you, God. Um, he had a cedar house. He saw the ark was still in a tent. Verse 2, Nathan's response is quite interesting. He says, hey, sounds fine to me. Go for it. So this is what he says. Sounds like a great idea, David. This is Nathan the prophet. Now, if you know your scripture, you may have heard of Nathan the prophet. Now, the chronicler doesn't tell us because the chronicler is always positive about David, as we've been saying. But Nathan, Nathan is the one who came to David, David the adulterer, David the murderer, and, and, and exhorted him that he was wrong and needed to repent. Nathan was the one who gave the great parable that, that got cut David's heart. That was Nathan the prophet. But again, the chronicler, maybe Ezra, some believe it's Ezra, he, he's nice on David, and he doesn't really give us that detail. But I'm sure the readers that he talks to, that he's writing to, they know the story. Nathan, oh yeah, we remember him. This is Nathan the prophet, and <clears throat> he simply states, uh, 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 the chronicler states simply that the prophet delivers the message. And, and, it's, and, and the message, is, it's kind of a, it's a subtle, sober rebuke that God had given but it ends up with great news. <laughs> there's a rebuke, but there's great news that, that overwhelmed David. Verses 5 and following. See, God first speaks to Nathan. He speaks to Nathan, and, and he simply says to Nathan, tell David I said no. <laughs> I never asked for a house or a temple. The mobile tabernacle system was working fine. What's wrong with it? I never rebuked any of the judges or any of the kings for not building a permanent home. Did I? And so we, there's, a, there's a subtle rebuke there to, to, to David. In, in one sense, God is saying to David, David, who do you think you are that you could build something for me? Now, now moving on, let, let's talk about what the promise was. What, 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 God, at that point, God, God shifts here and gives some great, some incredible promises that blew David's mind. First, the, 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 the promise is simply... David, your son will build a house for me. A house, a temple, a place where my presence will be. Uh, God's like one of the, the um, commentators says, without saying the specific words, David told Nathan that he wanted to build um, a temple to replace the tabernacle. That's what God wanted, a temple to replace the tabernacle. More than, the, 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 than 400 years before this, when Israel was in the wilderness, God commanded Moses to build a tent of meeting according to the specific pattern. We've looked at that in Exodus, okay? So that's what David tells, tells David. Now, the, the literal fulfillment of what God says would take place through Solomon, okay? David's son who came through Bathsheba. And again, Bathsheba, the adultery, the murder, but the chronicle doesn't go into all that. Solomon. Michael Wilcox. Um, it's not, it is not to be David, but his son Solomon who would build God's temple for God's ark. What God will do for David, however, is infinitely grander. It's even, it's, it's, it's grander than even that. Infinitely grander. In 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, it says, uh, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David, his father, at the place where David had appointed for the threshing floor of Onan the Jebusite. So the second book of Chronicles, a continuing story, the third chapter is when Solomon begins to, to build. And he builds in an interesting place that 
Any reader of the Old Testament would know Mount Moriah, that's the place where Abraham took his son Isaac in Genesis chapter 22. It had that experience of where, where he, the, 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 he was going to give the, put the sword in, in him, and God said, no, the angel came. Mount Moriah, interesting place where God would build, where they would build, they would build for God this, this place. Solomon, excuse me, would build that place of worship. Now, we, we should also understand that the Hebrew term for, for um, house had a double meaning. It can mean a house or, 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 or household or dynasty or temple. It, it refers not just to the structure, but it could refer to the people in the structure, okay? So, so David's house, quote, uh, would go even beyond Solomon. Beyond Solomon, down through the centuries to the one who was often called the, air quotes, son of David, Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, the incarnate one, the true temple, Emmanuel, the one who embodies the presence of God, the true dwelling place of God. So that in John chapter 2, when Jesus was talking with religious leaders, he declared, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And they thought he was talking about the building, but he's talking about his own body, because that building had been the presence of God, but now Jesus, the Son of God, was present. And he is the presence of God. He is the temple. He's the house. And so John says he was, they say, it'll take 46 years to build that temple. Build a temple. How are you, you going to raise it up in three days? John says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. The spiritual temple, spiritual house. But it goes on beyond that. In 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, Peter tells the saints, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So even the New Testament church, that's you, that's me, if we've trusted in Christ, we are that spiritual temple. We're that spiritual house. We're the place where God dwells. Isn't that exciting? That's us. That's us. All those around the world, all those throughout the ages who have trusted in Jesus Christ for eternal life, who believe in his name, the house of God. The, the house, the dynasty, the kingdom of, uh, is, is ultimately of the son of David would be eternal, an eternal kingdom through the ages. And, and verse 15, that's how Nathan passes that on. Your throne will be established forever. So David, this isn't just going to be you building something in your generation. What I have in mind goes far beyond you. Andrew Hill, the commentator, says, David will not build a temple for God, but God will build a royal dynasty from the family of David. Now, later in Chronicles, God gives David a little more insight into why David wasn't, able to, wasn't to be the one to do this. In, in, in 1 Chronicles 20, chapter 22, the word of the Lord came to, to me saying, you have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all surrounding enemies. His name shall be Solomon, which is very similar to the 
Hebrew word shalom, which means peace. His name shall be Solomon. I will give him peace and quiet to Israel in his days. And he shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. Again, interesting. Solomon, your son, royal throne established forever. Could it be that again, it goes beyond Solomon? The Chronicle is saying something amazing to his own generation, this 4th century B.C. audience. You see, as he writes, the, the, the great temple of Solomon has been built and has been destroyed already. And then they were rebuilt. They're in the process of rebuilding it during that 4th century, the, 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 the time of Ezra and of Nehemiah. And you might recall Hague, the book of Haggai, the prophecy of Haggai, one of those little Old Testament books, the Minor Prophets, um, how that, the, the old-timers who, who, who had heard about or maybe had even seen the, the old temple, when they were building the, 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 the second temple, the old-timers said, you call that a temple? Remember that? Because it, was, it wasn't as big and beautiful and glorious as Solomon's temple. It was a temple, yes, but it wasn't the kind of temple that they had. And again, that was part of the discipline that, that, that they were under. The temple was, a, was lesser of a temple. <clears throat> But God is saying, I, I've, I've give, I've not, he's saying by that, I've not given up on you. I, I, I've not given up on you as a people and as a house of David. The promise given to you will still be accomplished in many ways far beyond what you can even think or imagine. Listen, when it comes to the promise, I just want you to see one simple thing. David wants to do something for God, and God said, no, I want to do something for you, something that you would never dream. Now, let, 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 let's, let's look at the prayer. All that's uh, preliminary. Let's look at the prayer. These three things about the prayer I want us to see. And the first is, is, is this response of personal humility that we see in, in David as he, as he begins to understand what Nathan has said from God. And first of all, notice what he calls himself. Nine times in this in section, he says, your servant. I'm your servant. It's good for a king to have that attitude, isn't it? That, that God is king and I'm servant of the king. When everyone else is serving him. I am your servant. See, David, is feel, he, he truly feels unworthy. He is truly amazed. He says, who am I, O Lord? He's learning that spiritual health is not about what, but, about what we do, but what God does for us. He's learning that, and he learns it over and over again, just as we need to learn it over and over again, don't we? It's about God's grace, not about us. Not about what we do, but what he has done. You know, in, in, in the world of religion, there are many slogans about God. I saw an article this week by a person named Shane Truitt, uh, Pruitt, that said it was called Nine Things Christians Believe That Are Nowhere in the Bible. It was a good article. Um, one, one thing is, is that cleanliness is next to godliness. That's not in the Bible. I don't know if your mama told you that, but it's not in the Bible. It's one of those things you pull out sometimes, you know. Not in the Bible, though. That they were all God's children. That when you die, God gains an angel. That God won't give you more than you can handle. There's certain slogans that we have that we say sometimes that, that really, they sound, they sound wise, but they aren't. They're not, they're not, they may have a, an ounce of wisdom, but they aren't biblical statements from Scripture. But the number, they, they ranked them. The number one statement was this, God helps those who help themselves. Have you ever heard that one? Many people falsely believe that that's in the Bible. Or that if it's not in the Bible, it's biblical. It's, it's, there's some truth um, that, that we need to earn from it. You cannot earn your salvation. You cannot help God. You can't do that. 
That's the religion of Cain. That's the religion of Judas. That's the religion that led to the Protestant Reformation. The scriptures teach us that God comes to the helpless, not to those who think they can help themselves. That's the kind of God I need. I need a God who helps me because I can't help myself. We need a God who will do, do for us what we can't do for ourselves. The, the reformers, with all their faults, they got the main thing right. The just shall live by faith. By faith. Not by deeds, by faith. Not by works, by, not by involvement in the church. Not by ritual, by faith in what Jesus Christ has done. And they're saved just as any of us can be saved through what Christ has done. God helps the helpless. But you see, the, the, the idea that I can help myself and I can help God out is the default of humanity. That's our problem. That's, that's our condition. That's me, that's you, that's all of us. We cannot do that. We are, the scriptures say that our, that, that our condition before God is that we are spiritually dead. And when you're dead, what do you do? Nothing. Unless something from outside of you comes and gives you life. You do nothing. And spiritually speaking, that is the condition that the scriptures say you and I are in, 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 in our natural selves. But as Ephesians 4, uh, 2, 2, 4 would say, but God who was rich in mercy. He quickened us. He made us alive in Christ Jesus so that the dead can rise. That's salvation. That is what salvation is all about. When we trust Jesus Christ as our Savior, God works a spiritual resurrection in our lives. That is the incredible gospel. God helps the helpless. He helps the helpless. We need divine grace if we're to be saved. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Those who call on him, who confess their sins, who will, those are the ones who will find forgiveness. Those who, who confess. The, the, we, we talked a, a few weeks ago about the Indiana Jones first movie. I have a clip from the second movie that uh, kind of reinforces this point. Um, do we have that? Uh, Andy, can we show that right now? That's from Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade. It's the third installment in the, Indiana, the trilogy of Indiana Jones movies. The, the, the penitent man is humble before God. Great reminder that if, you don't, if, you don't, if you're not humble before God, you die. That's the gospel, folks. That's the gospel. Now, for me, the pathway to humility, the greater humility, is to slow down and, and pause and reflect and meditate on God and meditate on, on his word and meditate on what he is doing and and, and, and to see uh, how great he is and how small I am. Praying and listening and waiting and, and resting is the pathway towards humility, I believe. 
least it is for me. We're so much, the point is this, we're so much like David, wanting to do something for God rather than resting in grace, resting in his promise, and realizing that what he wants to do is greater than we can imagine through us. The second thing about this prayer is, is, is the praise that we see in the next, in verses 20 to 22. We see, we, see, we see praise. There's just no one like you, O oh God. No one besides you, O oh God. Praise. We praise you, God, that, that you are the, on, the one and the only true God. That you have eternal plans, not just plans for me, but plans that go beyond me. That's what David's thinking. You're, you're God the Redeemer. You redeemed your people from Egyptian slavery. You're the warrior God. You're the Lord of hosts, driving out the, the promised land, the other nations. Who, who worship idols. There is no God like you, verses 20 to 22, his praise. But it's not just his praise. Notice carefully, it's a, it's, it's a corporate praise. He, he, there's a weakness to his praise. Uh, f- four times he says, your people. He doesn't just say me. He calls himself your servant, but he talks about your people. We, the people of Israel, the ones that you have redeemed. He, the, he's entering into not just his experience, but the experience of the corporate people of God as he prays. Very important application for us. You know, there are many in our day who believe that, that, that uh, you know, I, I, I don't need the body of Christ. I can just worship by myself. I can worship the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, by myself. He's in me. I'm in him. I'm saved. I don't really need to, I don't need, I don't, I don't need people to worship. I can just worship God purely myself. Well, we're, we're tempted to do that. I, I think we need to be, be careful. We need each other. There's a, there's a corporateness to, to the worship experience that we need uh, uh, to understand. You know, we're always, I believe, tempted to compromise Jesus, to say that he's, he's only a great prophet, or to say that, oh, maybe he's, a, he's God, but, but he saves people in all kinds of different ways. And, 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 and they're the, the, the popular notions that challenge the clear claims of Jesus and the apostles, and they challenge our commitment to the biblical authority of their statements. In our day, there are pluralistic voices telling us that smart people, wise people, nice people would never dare declare exclusive faith claims. God's ways are not like our ways, folks. We, the people of God, as a community of faith, we need to have a clear confession an unshakable belief that Jesus Christ is Lord, and we need each other to make sure it stays clear and unshakable, to reinforce one another. That's what worship should do. It's a corporate declaration. Yeah, you might be able to connect with God by yourself, but how you know you're right? You need the body of, you need others in the body of Christ. Also, when you're by yourself, you think you're crazy. Because no one believes, no one, I'm, 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 I'm swimming against the grain all the time. But worship with God's people, it, it, it says, you begin to feel, I am not alone in my beliefs. I'm not crazy for what I believe. There are at least a couple other people who believe what I believe, who dare to believe that Jesus is still Lord in a world of confusion and decay. The people of Israel were ex- exiled because they failed to main strength, maintain a strong view of God, as he was recorded in his word. The God who says, you shall have no other gods before me. But the eyes of the nations are nothing. And so David says, we, there's no God like you. He affirms that. 
We dare not, like, we dare not slide back into the same kind of a weak theology that caused the exile in the first place. They caused them to live sloppy lives and believe sloppy things about God. They caused them to be ineffective in their witness to the world that needed God. Because every, the world in every generation needs God. We often sing a song declaring that our, our God is greater, our God is stronger, higher than any other. He's not just higher. That's true. He's not just higher and greater. He's the only true and living God. He really is. The other so-called gods are not really gods at all. I like the song we sang today. I will stand in your house and I will sing of your great love. I lift up my hands in sweet surrender. I, I, I lift up my voice to worship you. I give you my life. Fill me completely that your name may always be on my lips. That's what worship is. It's, it, 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 it's, it's this coming together to find strength in the truth of God among God's people. So David, even in his prayer, there's a weakness to it that we don't want to miss. David urges all people to realize this, even in the previous chapter, uh, which we didn't, have, we didn't look at much last week, um, Pastor Craig, but um, it, it, there's some great stuff in that, that psalm. And actually the psalm, uh, 1 Chronicles 16, is, is uh, the portion, it, 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 Psalm uh, 96 is, is, that, is, that, is there. 1 Chronicles 16, some of the same things we use sometimes for our responsive uh, reading. Statements like, declare his glory among the nations, or ascribe to the Lord families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name, worship the Lord the splendor of his holiness. There in the previous chapter, we saw that. It's there. David reminding himself that worship is not just an individual thing. In fact, it's not just an Israel thing. The nations are invited. And that's why evangelism is so important that we reach out to those who aren't yet worshiping the true and living God. We talked about his personal humility in his prayer. We've seen the corporate praise. And finally in David, we see what I just call a settled affirmation. There's a settled affirmation in verses 23 to 27. He ends by affirming simply what he has been saying. There's very little new information here. He's basically saying, amen, God. <laughs> that's what he's doing. He's verbally, he verbally restates to God what God has promised. You know, when we pray, that's often what we do. We, we speak back to God what he has promised. We tell God what he's already said. We remind him of his promises. Now, now again, you say, well, God already knows. Yes, he knows. In fact, God knew the first time you said it, so it's okay. Don't think that you, you're saying it the second or third time that, that God already heard it. God knew before you said it. That's not the point. Something happens as we speak God's word and speak God's promises back to him. It changes us. It changes us as we do that and brings joy to his ears. If you compare this last paragraph with the first verse, it's, the contrast is so stark that no, he is, he, 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 it, it's not what, that, that he's going to build something for God, but that God's going to do an amazing thing for him, and he understands that. He's affirming the grace of God as he closes in his settled affirmation. As people, we need to live each day simply being faithful to our callings with a settled affirmation that God is at work doing something beyond us, something more than we can imagine, even through us. The simple task that we do, he's using them for his glory. So remain faithful, continue to serve him. We're called to be faithful, to be faithful. We, we will never understand how much God is using the simple things that we do. 
Occasionally, we, we, in our congregation, we remind people of, of the missionaries. In fact, today we had we, we, uh, the, the Pollocks going to be in town, and uh, Kristen and, and Michael Pollock and their family. And um, we, we remind you that many of the missionaries that, that we support have been here in worship for a long time for, uh, at some point and then have moved on. That somehow this church over the years, God has used it um, as, as kind of a laboratory to, 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 to bless the ends of the world. It's amazing that God does that. I'm not sure that was the original intention. But see, God often does more than our original intentions. In the New Testament church in Antioch, you remember Antioch? They were first called Christians in Antioch, Jews and Gentiles worshiping together. And then in chapter 13 of Acts, that, 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 that cross-cultural leadership team were praying and worshiping and fasting, and, and it was there, not in Jerusalem, it was there that the missionary endeavor began. God does that. God does that. The other day, one of the elders, was, we were talking, and he stated that he was in a meeting with some, some church planters, with some other people talking about church plants, and, and one church planter here in town mentioned that he got the, the, the motivation to plant a church from reading a book called A Thousand Resurrections. Anyone heard of that book? It's Craig's wife's book. Reading that book, and he was motivated to, to, to not just uh, plant a church, but to plant a church that would plant churches. And so in the last 10, 15 years, he's planned, that he had, there's four churches that he's planted. Now, he hasn't been part of our body, but motivated by things in our body. You will never know the impact you have. In fact, one of the joys of heaven will be learning the people who are there because of your impact, and you didn't know it. Think about it. Think about that. That's what God does. God wants to do more than we can imagine, more than we can ever dream. You want to be a person who worships God in spirit and truth, Worship with humility. Worship with others. Let your experience of worship deepen your spiritual life so that you go away with settled affirmations about God, about yourself. Affirmations that will impact your daily life in practical ways as you live in this world. It's said about David that he was a man who had a heart for God, a man after God's own heart. So scripture says that. And that's true, that's great. But... Like David, we forget that ultimately it's not about having a great heart for God. It's, it's not about being so committed that we do great things for God. Ultimately, that's not what it's about. Ultimately, it's about what he has done, what he is doing in us, for us, and through us. That's what it's ultimately about, not what we do. Which is we, we began this worship service with a song, which is a great song. We'll, we'll end here. The Horatio Boner, 1861, the Scottish church leader and hymn writer. Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load because on Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All of the ground is sinking sand. All of the ground is sinking sand. Ultimately, it is not what we do for God. It's what God has done for us. And we worship as a response to the God who has done such great things, is doing great things, and wants to continue doing great things on behalf of his people. And one of the blessings of the Lord's table, because no matter what you've been doing all this month, this reminds you, 
it ain't about you. It's about him. It's about him who died for us. Him who, he, he, he who loved us before we even called out to him. It's about him. It's about his grace. It's about his kindness. about his love for sinful people. This is, that's why this is the Lord's table. It's not the church's table. It's not the pastor's table. This is the Lord's table. And Christians through the centuries have celebrated the death of Christ because that's what it's all about. In that death we stand, in that death we rest. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He took the cup, the cup of the new covenant and said, this is the cup of the new covenant that's shed for the remission of your sins. Drink it in remembrance of me. Whenever you eat the bread or drink the cup, you proclaim or announce or declare my death till I come again. The death that he would do the next day on our behalf. He, Jesus transitioned this simple Passover meal with his small family into what now we celebrate each month with believers throughout the, 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 the world. Let me ask that officers to come forward as we continue. So this, this table is for those who know the Lord, those who, 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 who understand the simplicity of the gospel, who have repented of their sins and are trusting, not themselves, but trusting in Jesus Christ alone. It's for those who, who are pursuing God through his church and relationships are right with, with God's people. It's for children who have been invited to this table through your parents, through the, through the leadership of the church, through your parents. This is for people who know Christ and, 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 and want, to, want to receive the grace of Christ in a, in a special way and know his love. There's a, but there's a warning there. We always give that warning that the scriptures tell us to give. That if you don't know Christ yet and, you, and you're not walking in, in, in repentance and you're, this, your heart is hardened towards something, whatever, or someone, whoever, let that pass and just spend this time in prayer that God would, would soften your heart and, get, and bring the full repentance to your life and if you've never trusted in Christ, we ask you to just pray and talk. Maybe even go to the uh, intercessor's room at the end and say, I want to hear no more about this Jesus who simply saves us just as we are. Scriptures say to examine ourselves. Take, take a second now, just pray silently to the Lord. <clears throat> but we're all unworthy, and yet because of Jesus, you have work repentance in our hearts, in our lives, and we, we, we run to you. We run to the table because we need your grace. We need your love. We need to, to know the assurance that, that, that we have the eternal life that you offer in the gospel. Thank you for this table reminding us uh, of the, the basics, the foundation, the simplicity of our faith that it rests in Jesus' death for sinners. In Jesus' name, amen. The body of Christ. <clears throat>